Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Club trends come and go, but Steve Bug has been a constant in dance music over the last two decades. His Poker Flat label has been a key source of crisp, pared-down tech house since its launch in 1999. It started with a bang. The first EP featured Steve Bug's Lover Boy, a slinky house track that would help define the label's sound and in time become one of its hits. That record came during a turning point in Bug's life. His move from Hamburg to Berlin, the slowing down of his productions, and the beginning of a successful run as the head of three labels. With Poker Flat's 15th anniversary celebrations winding down, we invited Bug by our Berlin office and found him in an especially talkative mood. He took us through his formative experiences at Hamburg's Front Club, his days as a hairdresser, and the changes he's seen over the years in the dance music business. We're coming up on the very end of the year, the end of 2014. Tell me a little bit about your year as a DJ. Yeah, it started in January, of course, and uh, it started more or less at the BPM Festival. I think um, that was the first thing maybe I've been doing since most of the years. In the last uh, years, I've been going to Mexico and you know, play some some gigs in the warms instead of uh, staying in the cold. And then I had a break for skiing vacations, and then after afterwards, I've been doing quite a lot of work in the studio and been traveling very much. I just came back from the States and uh, was the second or third tour in the States this year and before Japan and some other European gigs, of course. And uh, it's been a bit stressful, but I really enjoyed this year much better than last year. Last year, I had a bit of a struggling with myself with, the, you know, tra- traveling got a bit really hard for me. I don't know, this year was amazing, but last year, I don't know, I just, maybe I played too many gigs in too many different countries. I, I kind of couldn't keep up with traveling anymore and jet lags. And, and so this year was was great. I really enjoyed it. Did you scale back at all? Or do you think it was more an attitude adjustment or making some little changes in your life? I mean, yeah, maybe doing some changes in my life. I, I didn't really drink that much this year that I used to do the years before. I always took a break off for for like a month or two, sometimes last for three months. So this was the first year where after the four months, I didn't really want it to go back. I didn't feel like drinking. I mean, uh, when I was in Japan now, that was the first time I was drinking mostly every second day. Same on the US tour, at least when I was playing, I was drinking a little, but still like the amount was way less. I think that helped to to stay more focused on uh, and and the travel didn't really get to me so much as it used to be before because traveling and when you're drunk is just terrible. It gets uh, way worse for your body and uh, so that definitely helps. And I think also last year I got a bit fed up with what the business turned into and uh, and uh, I think I got over it uh, at the end of last year and uh, so I, now I don't care about it so much anymore and I, I, I think again I found my 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 own space in the in the business and uh, found a lot of new interesting artists that doing mostly vinyl only labels and stuff like this and that also helped me to you know like 
come back with a good energy and to see there's something else going on then apart from you know the major the major few DJs that everyone raves about. So you're talking about the industry sort of generally, the music industry, the dance music industry. Yeah, exactly. What what do you think it was that was that was getting to you about it? I mean, in general, I think uh, looking at the social media, how how people present themselves and uh, how even young DJs, you know, come up with a press agent, with a management, and you barely speak to anyone in person anymore. If you want to remix, even from a friend, from someone you really know well, you have to go through management to get the remix and I'm kind of I don't I've never been like this I mean I I've been in business for so many years and if someone asks me to do a remix and I like and he's a friend of mine and I like what he's doing and, and I'm gonna reply myself I don't want anyone else and I don't get you know why people still ask for a lot of money for a remix because these days you barely make money with selling music so I don't get the whole attitude of a lot of people and uh, also again saying you know about the young guys why they come into the business and it seems like most of them get into the business because they see it as a business model and uh, they come with a whole business plan instead of you know just doing it for the love of the music the way that we got into the to the business and then it turned out to become a business even without you know in the beginning we'd have never thought of it as a business it was just you know something was our hobby and and we finally started to uh, make a living out of it but for a lot of years we were all struggling i i think and uh, so nowadays everyone wants you know in the very beginning they already want you know four-star hotels and they already know where, where they want to be in five years and and uh, they have some someone to help them with it and they sometimes even want to reach it in two years and they make it and i don't blame them you know it's it's fine it's a different it's a different way but for me it's just like not the not the way and it's not really the type of people i really want to work with in a way it's because i i feel like there's some some warmth and heart feeling uh, missing it must be a little alien to you in a way i mean when you got into this there was no internet there wasn't this level of professionalism probably i mean does this feel at all like the same industry that you were originally wanting to get into, wanting to be, become a DJ in? Yeah, I mean, in general, that's that's a question I asked myself a few years ago. If if I would be 18 right now, and if, if I would go out to the first time to a club where they play, you know, electronic music, if I would still feel the need to go on buying music and, you know, at the end, try mixing at home and maybe even become a DJ at the end because I've been mixing at home for three years before I even thought of becoming a DJ because I was enjoying being on the dance floor so much I never wanted to be on the other side. Uh, it is definitely a different business uh, but parts of it are still the same and, and uh, the, the reasons why I got into it they still move me and they still keep me doing what I'm doing and uh, I think that's what most important you know and, and that's what I finally figured that that I don't really have to care about the others I just have to keep on doing what I really do and don't really care about what the others do and uh, and there's always going to be a place you know for you in the business and uh, yeah that's so it's fine. You sort of talked about what what is a lot different, and then and then you said there are some things that are the same. What are some of those things that have stayed the same? For example, when you dig for music, and uh, th there's still like so much music out there that you can find, you know, by digging the record shops or like the internet or you know wherever you want to find it. As I was saying, there was a lot of uh, vinyl only stuff, and uh, you just have to keep your ears and uh, open to to find this stuff. 
And you know, the, the, the feeling you have when you discovered something that is, for example, is still the same or like the way there's still some people you, you started working with and they, they are the same, you know, they, that people used to be back in the days, they really happy uh, to be a part of a family and, and, uh, and release their music and they, they produce great music. And also, you know, like, uh, oh, what else is the same, the whole kind of, you know, the, the way of setting up the artwork for the label that never really changed and the, the idea is still the same and finding artists is probably still the same as well uh, in most cases. So these are, these are the things that I still think are worth keeping doing it. So you were originally from Bremen. Yeah. And Bremen is not necessarily one of the German cities that would be most closely associated with house or, or exactly. techno, but it's produced, you know, one of Germany's biggest sort of house fanatics. I mean, how does that happen? How, how did you get into dance music? Yeah, I mean, in, in 87, uh, some friends asked me to join them to go to the club in Hamburg uh, called Front Club and uh, where Boris Lugos and at the time, I don't even know if Boris was already playing, Klaus Stockhausen was playing at the time and uh, and they, they told me this is a club and they're going to play this type of house music and um, I'm like, what, what, you know, what is this? And then I went to a record shop to find it out and I bought two compilations. Something was like Chicago House Tracks Volume 2 or something like it. And the other one was another one uh, with a lot of other artists, but mainly probably also from, from Chicago. I don't even remember, exactly remember that one. And so I listened to the records at home and I was like, wow, actually I kind of like it. And then I went to the club and I, the first time I discovered like someone mixing music together instead of playing track by track. Yeah, I was on the dance floor all night and I mean, I, I used to dance a lot before and, uh, but that was suddenly there was no breaks in between and, and it didn't really matter if you like the track or not, because in, in general, if you like the, I, I like the genre and so I just kept on, on dancing, you know, and, and uh, that's how I got into it. And then from there on, I kept on buying records every week. I've, I've been a lot in Hamburg to buy records. I mean, in Bremen, we had a few stores that were selling like major signings, you know, like some stuff has been signed to bigger labels uh, already at these days. And, uh, but mostly I've been shopping in Hamburg at the time at Container Record Store. Uh, they've been having a lot of the imports coming in. You said you were dancing before you discovered house music. Yeah. Uh, what were you dancing to before like, that? Yeah, anything that would play in the clubs and the, that I like. I was listening to a lot of uh, funk stuff. Rather, the commercial was played in, in the Bremen discotheques at the time and uh, some, some black music, of course, uh, in general. I don't even remember was as a jazz before that or afterwards. Uh, sometimes you mix mix up things after all the years, and uh, yeah, you know, some Prince, Michael Jackson, whatever. They all all of these, and then even some pop music, of course, uh, would have been played in some of the clubs. But in general, I like to move my body at the time. So, mm -hmm. well, for a lot of people who become very attracted to DJing, I mean, they sort of see what's going on in the booth and they immediately want to do that. But it kind of sounds like for you, you figured out what was going on in the booth and thought as someone who liked the music as a dancer, like, oh, I like that. This just lets me dance better. I mean, would you say that was true? The club I was going to, they had actually the DJ was behind uh, blue glass so that you could barely see him playing. I kind of still like the idea of, you know, because you don't concentrate on the DJ. Also, as a DJ, 
I like it the other way around because you have a better communication with the crowd. You feel better what's going on out, out there. But then again, sometimes it's good if you play just for your self and people enjoy what you're doing and it's a different enjoyment on the dance floor i think because you don't really have to, you don't really look to the dj because you you know you won't see him anyways and so you just concentrate on the music and and rather close your eyes and just go for it maybe that was one of the reasons but i think in general i i, I just simply wanted to enjoy myself instead of you know being there and being responsible to make everyone else uh, enjoying themselves but the, yeah that changed in about 91 when we decided to start doing our own parties because at the time bremen as you've been saying like they, they didn't really have house clubs or uh, there were a few parties uh, where like uh, matthias heilbronn He also released a record on our label and he used to work with Deep Dish and he's, big, uh, and he's living in New York since a long time. And uh, Jan Helmerding, uh, who's still in Bremen and uh, still a DJ, but he was more like, a, I think he's more now into the radio stuff and I, I don't know exactly what he's doing. But these were the two only ones who, who were like doing house parties already at the time, rather New York house and then something, something else and some acid house also uh, later on. So, yeah, in 91, we decided we wanted to do something. We wanted to do at least a party once a month. And that's what I started doing with a friend of mine. And then after a few parties, they were so successful that the club we were doing the parties at where I used to be bartending, they actually asked me if I wanted to become like uh, one of the residents for the Friday night with one of the other guys that was playing um, rather black music at the time and then R&B and, you know, hip hop. So then finally we had a club night going on since 91 it was only about like house and techno so the reception in in bremen to this was quite good then people got into the house yeah there was a need for it you know and and i read about it because it was already like you know in 91 it was already there and uh, in hamburg there used to be like the first techno clubs with unit club with gary d uh, my labor partner tobias lampe and uh, henry stammer at the time and they were doing big raves and uh, i think it was even was it the first year of Mayday 91 or was it 90 already? I don't know, but Love Parade, you know, they, so it's like really took off at the time. And, and uh, even Bremen is a small town, 600,000 people. It needed a place for people to go out to this kind of music. And uh, yeah, it was for it was successful for a while. And I don't know if there's something still happening at, nowadays, but I mean, in general, at that time, the people really needed this kind of music. It was, was a very good time. They also had a lot of English people uh, stationed because of the army. So we had a lot of English raver with white gloves, you know, and my partner Jens Malstedt, he was playing a lot of um, a lot of the English breakbeat stuff. He, he always had, you know, like an eye on the English market. And uh, so it was quite interesting time. I love hearing about what DJs did before they sort of went full on professional. And you sort of have a great day job that you were doing before <laughs> that. You were working as a hairdresser, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Was that something you really liked doing or were you just hoping to get uh, out of it did you did you really want to dj professionally no to be honest uh, i really i really enjoyed my job and uh, the only other thing that i wanted to do was something was had to do something with fashion that the only way to do it for me was to go to learn how to become a tailor then go to another school and, and learn more about it the Tailors at the time used to earn 90 euro a month in the first year. Per month? Per month. So there was actually no way to make a living. And uh, since I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17 already, 
it was actually more or less impossible to uh, survive with this kind of money. So I always knew I wanted to do something creative and I wanted to do something with people. And um, so I decided, you know, I try hairdressing. In, in Germany, you have to learn for three years before you can actually do something. You only have to cut for uh, people you bring to the shop instead of customers. The three years went, went by pretty fast. I was, as I was saying at the end, I was still, I was already bartending at the, at the club, uh, enjoying my weekends and... Uh, Sometimes coming to the salon with a big hangover on uh, Saturdays, of course, with my boss not being very happy about it. And, uh, I even missed some some Saturdays, which uh, actually turned out to be very... Uh, they, they've been very angry with me and uh, sent me home when I arrived at 12 o'clock, one hour before the shop was closing. I put myself together for the final years and then I, I made it. And then I started working at other shops when I finally been finished with, with learning. And uh, I did it, I think, for another four years and every year I, I took a break in the summer to go to party in Ibiza first year was for three months I think then it was getting less every year but I always took a took a break for a few months in the summertime and uh, every time afterwards I reduced the day I was working the the only problem with it was that if you if you only work three days a week as a hairdresser, so you're not available for your customers all the week, and uh, if you take a break in the summer, if it's for three months, you're going to lose all customers because they're going to come back three times. And then at the end, I was uh, still working at the same shop, almost making the same money than I used to make when I was working five days because my boss, she really liked me in having uh, having me in the, stop, in the shop. But I barely had uh, customers and uh, I got really uh, bored of sitting around waiting for people who walk for walk-ins, right? Because And then you have to build up. And then before you have built like a new followers of customers, then uh, you're already going on the next vacation time. And, and, and then I was like, okay, this is not going to happen. And uh, the same summer, the club owner changed where I used to play. And they offered me a job as a regular uh, DJ with even more money which I, at that point, I finally could have, you know, survived from. Because before, the money we got, to come back to your point before, we actually spent even more than that on records. So it was not a job that you could make a living off. It was something yeah, you could do to pay off your records, but then you still had to put some more money in to buy all the records that you wanted at the time. Yeah, and then finally this, this opportunity came up with a, a change of the club owners. Unfortunately, the guy hasn't really done anything of what he was promising about the changes in the club. And uh, so they closed for one month and uh, everyone, when they came back in, so it was just repainted. And in the, in the months in between, there was another small club opening up, which was actually, for the time, I think the better place for, for a small town like Bremen. And so they lost pretty much all the regulars, even though uh, they made some changes on the bar and all the bartenders and also the DJs, we all decided at one point to just quit because this guy was a total, uh, I don't want to say any bad words, but yeah, we, we all decided to leave. And at, at that time, then I finally moved to Hamburg and started working at my nowadays partner, uh, Superstition Recordings, and started doing parties over there in Hamburg. It would seem on the surface maybe that, you know, being a hairdresser and being a DJ are like completely different. But I do wonder if there are some some things you might learn from from the one that transfer over to the other. Maybe not necessarily with how to spin records and the physical skills, but having to be sort of personable, making good conversation. I would imagine that these things would serve you well when you start DJing all over the world. 
No, yeah, of course. Like, you know, like being around people you don't know but and still like making them feel comfortable or, you know, like uh, make yourself feel comfortable around them. That's definitely something that comes with the with the first job and is, is in both jobs, you know, is, is quite important. The creativity in itself, I think, you know, to find your way of, of doing things instead of, you know, copying others or I think that's that's another thing that comes with it and uh, which was maybe help, helpful to, to do it. Funny enough, it, there's quite a lot of DJs that used to be hairdressers though, um, so... There must be a connection for some reason. I don't. I don't know what it is, but I try to figure it out. But I, I can't. And I even spoke to some others, but they all they they all don't know why or what is. It's probably you know as I was saying before, you getting into it because you wanted to do something creative, and then you know like making music or like DJing is also can have a certain type of creativity uh, if you want to put it into. Doesn't have to. <laughs> So you finally get to Hamburg, which is this music scene that you had, in a way, been kind of experiencing from afar all along. How did you find it once once you got there? Once you were actually sort of in the in the in the heart of it? I mean, at the time, it was already it, it has changed already quite a lot. Uh, I mean, in, in in the very late '80s, when I started to go out, the the front club was mostly. Mostly, it was a gay club, so it was like ninety-five percent gay people, three percent uh, lesbian girls, and two percent straight people. So, I mean, in general, the the way the party was was quite uh, different to any other parties afterwards in the techno world. The the, the whole techno movement in the nineties in in Hamburg it was uh, more built around you know the a different scene, also about like the how you say the uh, prostitutes and their um, pimps. Those would come out to Hamburg clubs on the rapper because most clubs used to be on the rapper bahn, and uh, so in the mornings after they finished their usual jobs, they would come to to the clubs, and uh, so it was a completely different scene over there, um, and it was attracting way different people at the time. Uh, the the music in itself and the front, I think at the time, Boris was kind of still the resident playing rather. New York kind of vocal house, um, you know, strictism kind of stuff, and and uh, so was, that was something I didn't really follow that much. I I picked some of the records, but in general, it wasn't really my music to play all night. And uh, I mean, I've been always open up to to different or various styles instead of you know just playing one inside, uh, kind of genre. But so it was rather techno-ish at these days. And uh, the parties we were doing, we were doing it at the front club, but we were doing it Fridays, not Friday nights, and they were they were open to normal crowds as well and it was it used to be very hard on a Saturday to get in for straight people and uh, I've been one of the only lucky ones uh, and also Martin Lansky actually was very funny and another guy who was working at our office we all been there at the at the time at the club without knowing each other or meeting each other at the time our parties were more focused on techno but still like some Chicago house and some minimal stuff already I think there was a time when I was doing the minimal funk series when we started Raw Elements kind of more or less also the second room we would play like some drum and bass and uh, like uh, kind of wall, and sound, wall of sound and you know this kind of trip hop whatever you want to call it uh, the chill out room stuff yeah but still danceable but still with a groove so um, yeah it was quite fun to do both, both floors at the time. Yeah, you mentioned raw elements. And when you describe the sort of music that you were interested in playing at that time, I mean, that is the sound of that label. I mean, tell me about starting that label. Uh, I used to release my records on Superstition. I never felt like uh, it was the perfect home base for my music. Uh, I mean, as it was rather techno label with a trancey touch to it. And 
I mean, I've been a part of of the label for a while, but I, it's better for me to place myself in, you know, some some other uh, with around some other artist. And uh, I already understood at the time that it's kind of important to have, you know, some other people that are similar thinking or making similar music around you uh, instead of, you know, just releasing music uh, randomly on, on, on some label. So I, I've been talking to Tobias and telling him that I want to send my stuff to other labels and actually, um, or, you know, like I, I don't, didn't really feel like this was my real home base or this was like worth releasing on my music in the future. And, uh, also some behavior of some artists at the time already I, I didn't really underst understood and I don't want it to be a part of it at some label parties. And uh, so then we kind of uh, talked about it for quite some time and uh, he, he, I think it was even him coming up with the idea of, you know, like setting up, building a label around, you know, like uh, the music that I liked. And uh, I gave it a very short thought and then... Um, we started uh, Royal Elements. Uh, I mean, I came up with the name and all the the other stuff. The all the artistic side was always on my uh, page, but the label was born, and then uh, I started releasing my music over there and looking for uh, at, the, at this label. And we started looking for other people to have you know similar minds or like you know interesting music for us to release that would fit our um, intention of what we had for the label. You've always released quite a lot of your own music and been relatively prolific in the studio. What, what was your process like at that time with, with production? I, at that time, I had a bedroom studio. I had a small room in Hamburg that I think it was 12 square meters where I had my uh, mattress, my little stack of clothes and where I had also like my, um, I think at the time I was using just a JD-800, a uh, small Mackie 1604 and uh Akai S950, very cheap alternative to the Akai S1000, which I couldn't afford at the time. So, yeah, that was pretty much my setup. And since it was my my living room, I was mostly making music all the time. That was the only thing I was doing. Uh, yeah, it seems like quite a, a sort of monk-like existence. You have this little cell of a room. Yeah. It's like your mattress, your clothes, yeah. your equipment. I mean, there's not room for anything else. Yeah. That's that's the minimal way of living, and I try to keep it up to, until today. But unfortunately, the the record collection got so big that it is is one of the biggest things I have to carry around when I ever move. Of course, you know that in all the years you you earn some more furniture or things like this. But in general, I I, I kind of like to keep things simple, and uh, I think that re always reflect in my music. Try to keep to keep it as simple as possible, but still like put enough into the, so it's not like super minimal or I mean there's definitely way more minimal stuff than what I'm doing and it was at the time as well when I stopped working at the Superstition um, office I was pretty much spent all the time on working on music and going out and enjoying myself and playing some shows and uh, but I remember that it was even sometimes it was hard to even survive making a living in this small to pay my rent for this room and if my mother wouldn't have support me for a few years I think uh would have probably had to stop or find another day job to, you know, make a living. But in general, I think that's a, at one point for an artist, you have to make a decision, you know, I mean, I, I've been talking to so many artists and they've been frustrated about, you know, like their situation and they don't 
play enough gigs to make a living and blah, blah. I'm, I, and I'm telling them, I've been doing jobs for so many years before it finally happened. And, and uh, I had very small expenses and I, I've been living on pasta with uh, ketchup for weeks just, you know, to keep on doing what I was doing. And and I think a lot of young artists don't understand that, that they, they see how, you know, like, artists that are around for for a longer time how they make a living out of it and or even like some younger artists that have a business plan or they have been more lucky than them or whatever you know they look at them and think like you know they make a ton of money they already fly around the world and i'm still sitting here and uh, it's just you have to wait for it and and most people i think they do the mistake of changing their sound into something more generous people understand it easier or you know they they kind of lose their personality in their music to try to make it happen for them and i think it's it's a bit of a shame because that's what really keeps it interesting you know like uh, the personality of someone brought into their tracks so instead of you know trying to make a living as fast as possible i think it's it's more important to keep on doing what you really want to do and uh, focus on it and i think at the end it's going to pay off way more than you know if you become up popular artist in like a few years because then the fall is going to be uh, much earlier and it's going to be harder because you never ha have you know he didn't make up a lot of friends on the way up and uh, also i think another thing is which is very difficult for uh, young artists is to being thrown in a big room after you made like three big records and then you've been thrown in a big room for like 3000 people and before you've been probably playing bars for 30 people or 50 people then you have to entertain them and of course you're nervous and uh, a lot of clubs won't book you again if you fail you know and and it's a shame that they don't even have the chance to you know grow on on this kind of this kind of things and then after two years they disappear and you never see them again it's it's so it's a combination really of patience you know being willing to eat pasta with ketchup and play little bars <laughs> for a while but then also perseverance being willing to stay with what you really believe in whether or not it's particularly trendy at, at any given moment. I mean, that really strikes me as sort of being your secret to success over all of these years is yeah. you've really, you've really stuck with what you believe in. Yeah, more or less. I, I mean, uh, in, in general, I think that that's today it still works, even though a lot of people come up with a business plan, as, we, as I've been saying before, and, and it works for them as well. It's a different way of of getting into the business. But in general, I think the way you make more honest fans and if you if you care about what you're doing and if you really want to express yourself instead of, you know, becoming just a big name DJ, you have to eat the pasta for a few months or for a few years and, and keep on doing what you do and, you know, and, and try to make it. And some people will, may not make it, but this is, you know, this is in general, this is a problem of, of artists. It's always hard to survive and and uh, and to, to make it because, I mean, these days it's definitely harder than it used to be because there's way more people trying to get into the market. But again, the market is also much bigger than it used to be. And uh, once people pick up what you're doing, the support through social media can be like surprisingly fast growing uh, without you doing anything at all. And uh, so I think patience is very important. Yeah. There was sort of one big shift in your sound that, that I can think of. And that's sort of between raw elements and poker flat. Yeah. But really the big difference was that the music seemed to slow down a lot. 
Was that something that was sort of in the ether? Was that something that was just a personal preference of yours? I mean, thinking about some of the early Raw Elements tracks compared to Loverboy, things definitely got a little slower, a little slinkier. Yeah. What, what was going on there? I mean, Loverboy uh, produced in 99. And at the time, you had like two types of music in most clubs. It was, uh, especially in Germany, uh, maybe even in the rest of Europe, it was either hard techno called trance at the time, uh, and uh, or it was cheesy filter, French filter house kind of disco-ish sound. So at the time, I would find myself playing either too, yeah, either too slow and too soft, or not commercial enough. I remember playing uh, like a house track with full vocals, and someone was asking me if I could play some vocal tracks, and I'm like, this is a full vocal track, so I don't really. I got the point. But in general, I was kind of fed up with the techno scene because it, it attracted way more people. I don't want to see myself around with. I always kind of uh, kind of got into this. Also, one of the reasons to get away from normality or, you know, like the kind of... Uh, I always try to find, you know, a niche like that where I would find uh, people that I really wanted to be around with and... Uh, instead of, you know, like trying to find the biggest market or something like it. And in the 90s, there was a lot of techno music, especially in Germany, was attracting a lot of uh, people that were just in into the scene because it was kind of, they read about it in the magazines and uh, they thought it's hip to do it and uh, they have to do drugs because it's written in the magazine that techno is uh, similar with ecstasy and it all gets together and whatever. In general, I think they didn't really feel the music they didn't really feel or understood the music at all they've just been there and they they've been a part of the party okay and they, and uh, you're always going to have people they're going to come out to the party and not understanding it but being a part of it it's it's fine it's totally it, it's important to have a mix up mixed crowd uh, but at the time it was a lot of people that only came for this reason and it was uh, also losing a lot of the the girls and the gays and you know like missing kind of the color in the music movement in the harder techno stuff that were, I was playing at the time so I decided to go rather into some slower and deeper stuff. And uh, I think also at the time in Hamburg, we were playing at smaller at a smaller place called The Lounge. And uh, we used to play like Thursday nights and playing like rather, you know, deeper, deeper house tracks. And um, and that was kind of one of one of the influences. Uh, yeah, I think the tempo just in general got slower, at least with the stuff that I was playing. And then you know, like of course you you lower your speed. I mean, coming in the nineties, from there was even uh, Gary D at the time. I think you called himself Gary one hundred forty five BPM or D or something like this, or one hundred forty five D. And then he slowed down to one hundred thirty three, which still fast, but <laughs> seemed uh, incredibly slow for yeah, the moment. Yeah, right? but I mean, in general, the nineties speeded up quite much and then at the end they slowed down again luckily and uh, in the 2000s a lot of the big clubs had closed and, and then it went all back to smaller clubs and a lot of people who were in it for the love of the music opened clubs and uh, it was a good time for Germany after after 1999 I think 1999 was really a big point of change and it was like one of my toughest year in the DJ 
DJ life because I, I there was no floor where I, where I was really fitting apart from maybe in Hamburg we still had some amazing underground parties happening over there uh, I remember when I played Loverboy the first time and our distributor they were like kind of yeah we didn't know you know it was a track and the first time I played it out and of course from vinyl because uh, you didn't have anything else to play it off at the time and then the, the, the whole club went nuts and then they were like oh man, man maybe he's right maybe it is a big record <laughs> and uh, yeah that was a uh, good change but in, in general the even the the track it sold took quite some years to really sell it it didn't it wasn't an instant hit or something it really took maybe because it was too early for the for the time out there because as i was saying people were playing different stuff but yeah that sound that you ended up <clears throat> sort of coming into this this slower sort of sexier more more minimal sound was not sort of just limited to what you were doing in the little scene you were part of. I mean, it spread sort of over the course of the next number of years. I mean, when did you get the sense that what you were playing was sort of part of this maybe larger movement? I don't know. I mean, if you will look at the Cologne style, like uh, the before Compact, the Profan and Studio One series, and uh, they already were kind of also on this kind of move, you know, like... Um, at the end of the raw element stuff they, they're kind of you know we're this doing this kind of tracks and um kind of minimal funky they, they were more german than our stuff but also you know cabinet records at the time and they were getting it and and on the compilations that i did the minimal funk i, I think that kind of uh, shows a lot like the music that i was playing and the labels that were around at the time and doing kind of the stuff that we were doing already there were some i remember like minimal funk records so there were a lot of people already doing it and then uh, it, it got more and more as you've been saying and it, it the sound grew and then people would start to call it minimal at one point and uh, and then it became super popular and i remember at the time uh, again i felt like everyone's doing what we are doing and i would have to find something else because i don't want it to do what everyone else was doing and uh, luckily the hype shifted pretty fast to uh, a rather functional, loopy, uh, lots of effects and just drums, drum kind of tracks. So rather again to like back to kind of a techno-ish uh, version of it, even though um, the original idea of Minimal was even, I, I wouldn't even say like we, we came up with the idea because I mean, the, before there the was Robert Hood with Minimal Ma Nation and it was more techno, of course, but the minimal idea was around from the very beginning. In general, techno and house music is minimal. I mean, it has a, some drums, a bass line, maybe a vocal and sometimes a synthesizer and that's it. It's definitely not that much happening. <laughs> so uh, we never really saw us as minimal label, even though I, we liked the term of minimal funk for a while because it kind of described the music that it was at the time. But yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, in your mind, what? how were you sort of thinking about the poker flat sound like if you ideally could put it in one section at a record store where would it go to be honest i don't care in the 15 years we've been filed under minimal we've been filed under tech house we've been filed under electro we've been filed under techno so deep house it's from impersonal the music definitely has is changing over the years and uh, it's progressing and it's a good thing uh, what's still important to me is that that I kind of hear 
a bit of the roots of the early days of house and techno. And I think it's very important for me personally, at least, that these roots are in the music and that, that it's not gone too far away from it. Uh, because that would got me into it and that's what I'm still feeling and that's what I'm about and that's what's a label about I think in, in general it's kind of kind of uh, needs to have this connection with the roots of the early days and then whatever you want to file it under it's, it's fine for me I mean these days especially with the with the digital stores the filing is just I don't know if a genre boosts up then people are going to release everything under that genre I mean now look at uh, look at some of the stores releasing uh, Avicii tracks or whatever on the Deep House you know and then it's a it doesn't really make sense. It's not deep house at all, and it, the term loses its meaning. Yeah, totally. And uh, I mean, and, and that's very difficult for a lot of labels that still doing deep house, for example. But yeah, I don't, I don't blame anyone, or I don't, I don't really care. But I think in general, it's about like you know, music that you like or you don't like, and you have to look for it nowadays. Maybe even more than than it used to be, because uh, you can't think that people would file it for you because it's not happening anymore. So you have to dig. <laughs> That idea of deciding what you like and you don't like, like sort of as the head of a label, as, as an A&R, that kind of becomes your job in a way. And when you did like something, there were sort of three categories of that because you were running three labels at the same time. There was Poker Flat, but also Desus and Audiomatique. Yeah. How have you kind of divvied up music over the years? Yeah, to divide them easily, is, this is definitely the rather deep house, a classic deep house kind of vibe. Um, then again, Poker Flat would probably rather be like a techno-ish, tech house kind of vibe with, you know, like, as I say, like with an eye on the roots or with an ear on the roots or with a touch to the roots. Audiomatique is rather modern kind of sounding, sometimes even, you know, like the very clean kind of crisp sound uh where poker flat is rather analog kind of sounding bit rough and dirty and yeah first of all if i listen to a demo i don't file it i just i just try to to understand what it is and see if i like it or if you know if it if it touches me in general i think that's that's the point it, music has to touch me i don't there's music i like but and i play out but i don't really have any you know attachment to it i don't i don't feel it really but it does its job and it's great to be, play between like two tracks that for me are big tracks to you know like get from here to there from a to b but for the labels are it was always important that it has some you know some sort of soul or you know some feeling to it i can really get lost in in the sound and uh if i really like it then i decide on which label it goes sometimes you hear it from the first beat that this if you like it then this is going to be a disu record or like a poker flat record Sometimes it's hard, of course, because genres cross and sounds cr is crossing. And uh, But I think lately I've been doing a much better job than I used to do for some time a, a few years back because then it was even more difficult because no one was really doing uh, Deep House at all. And um, then it suddenly came back from, you know, Drumweed community suddenly uh, was rising up and then... Uh, a compost black label was a compost black label yeah yeah, yeah compost black so suddenly i was like damn there's people out there they're doing this kind of music why are we not getting the demos right so i had to start digging and uh kind of uh, acquire artists for the label and uh but i mean in general the sound changed and then of course we got a lot of uh demos again uh, at the time and uh what i understood over the years that is uh, even as a or maybe that's a major job these days as an a and r to to really keep your ears ears open and look 
for yourself instead of waiting for demos to come to you because uh, most demos that have been sent to you have been sent to 5,000 other labels and they don't even care if it's the sound that you're releasing and it's you probably won't find anything interesting enough to release on 1,000 CDs or 1,000 uh, demo links or whatever so you rather have to look for you know some artist that just has been releasing one or two releases and then ask them if they want to do something for the label and I found it a much better way to find artists that release great music and that are worth releasing as well because sometimes you discover someone that hasn't released anything and uh, no one really cares about it. And it's quite sad. I, I mean, for, you, you sign something and you really believe in it and uh, you're putting it out there and then no one picks it up and you maybe you did a remix and then people only pick up the remix and the rest just lies there and no one really plays it. And it's great music and you keep on doing this for three, four releases and then, uh, I don't know, It's I think in general for people who haven't released yet, I found maybe it's better for them to release on a label that is smaller and grow with a community of friends of them or something like it was back in the days and then being discovered as a whole group or as a you know as a whole like a label whatever and uh, and then maybe go from there to like the bigger labels but because I think the major problem is that a lot of the people who dig for music for them if you're around for 15 years you're not to dig for anymore because I mean, you're obviously releasing something and they they think everyone picks it up anyways because you're a big label or whatever. But it's not like this anymore. But it's just that the, in the understanding of a lot of people who still dig for music is that they don't have to look at big labels because everyone else is playing it. But unfortunately, it's not true. <laughs> so uh, how do you keep things fresh then? If you've been doing a label for 15 years, there are going to be some people who have a preconceived notion at this point of what the label is about. How do you keep people looking at your label? How do you stay fresh? As I said, like uh, trying to look for a new artist, you know, that come up from, you know, like somewhere in the underground, have already this small little following and, you know, like, and, uh, you know, uh, release music of theirs. And also, I mean, keep the eyes open for what's going on out there without, you know, like following trends. We've never been about about that and we always wanted to rather do our own kind of sound instead of uh, that's actually the biggest question that we are asking ourselves how, how can we you know reach out to the people that we I don't want to say lost but that not really would probably dig for our label or search for our label uh, what we are doing um, and uh, it's a question un, uh, unanswered for us and if you have a solution <laughs> I think in general that these are the the questions that a lot of labels that that have been out there for a long time have to ask themselves how 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 it's possible to you know like still reach people that haven't heard of the label maybe or they they think the label is too popular or something like this and I think some of these people you you will never ever win back no matter what you do it's it's there's no way but I think the the our solution for now is uh, that you know we keep on doing what we're doing uh, because we do it for the love of it we hope that people understand it and that there's always g going to be great music to find on the labels and if they like it they can pick it up and if they don't it's fine but um they're lost maybe it's it's, def it's definitely worth checking out i think there's always you know quality music and at the end it's all a question of personal taste and people in general it shouldn't just 
look out for the newest shit or you know for the hippest thing on the other end and there's this always good music out there and it should be about that and people should look for good music but it's hard to communicate of course uh, in this digital world with people over the last 15 years with poker flat i mean there must have been some definite highlights i'm sure you've been thinking about those a lot over the course of the year. Yeah. Could you tell us about some of them? The uh, first release of Poker Flat, the uh, Loverboy uh, double action EP, was definitely a very well start for the label because it was selling over the years. And uh, yeah, it's still a big track though. And uh, But to set a starting point, it was perfect. Even though we couldn't know it was such a big success, of course. And then, of course, very obvious one is the Trent Muller album that we had uh, a few years back because it has a very big crossover potential and we sold a lot of CDs and uh, digital downloads as well. And um, also got very good feedbacks from, you know, big magazines uh, that would never pick up our usual dance stuff. It was just the right album at the right time and, and Anders at the time, he was, you know, just a highly respected artist. Uh, he, he's been doing remixes for Madonna at the time and stuff like this and uh, that was right before he started going into the band stuff that he's doing right now. Yeah, that was a super big one for us. I think we even got a silver silver CD for Germany and a gold one in Denmark. And uh, I think even major labels would have been probably happy to have this as a part of their uh, releases. The Last Resort was definitely a little bit different from other things that you'd released on the yeah. label. I mean, Trent Muller was definitely in your orbit, yeah. but this was a very different sound for Poker Flat. Yeah. Were, were you worried about that at all? Or did totally. you? Yeah. Totally. I remember when we first heard it and, and then I was like, I was calling my partner. I was like, man, I love this. This is great. But do you think we can handle this? This is like completely different. You know, it's not, it's kind of working with the sound of the label. If you look at it now, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit more, crossover in a way through the vocals and you know the arrangements and uh, but then again even his dance stuff was already having way more going on than most of our stuff in the in the arrangements and uh yeah we were a bit worried of uh and we weren't that worried actually we were just worried if you can handle it you know like and if you can get it to the right people um because we knew it was a great album but we weren't sure if we can handle the amounts because also the hype that that was around him at the time and and uh and then i remember when the, the um people requesting for more copies and the, the problem with the digital cd market you had to put out a lot of cds to get into the stores and the way it would it, it works is if they don't sell it they're gonna send it back to you and you have to give them the money back so they were asking for another 10,000 copies and then we were like okay let's do five you know and see how it goes then the next week was there we need another 10,000 copies so the copies added up and uh, we were at the point where we, we were thinking if this ever comes back to us then we're so bankrupt <laughs> well luckily it didn't and uh, it all worked out at the end and uh, so yeah there was a quite of a shaky moment for us but it all turned out very well uh, yeah for a young uh, well not a young but for for a small independent label this is the dream to have a big hit but then when you realize what that actually means it's probably a bit scary <laughs> yeah. right i mean nowadays where like the cd is mostly non-existent in the market it's it doesn't care you you, you 
put it up there in the in the digital stores and you know you don't have any more you the only thing you can lose is the amount of money that you put into the the the, the press you know but uh, in the marketing but with the cds you know knowing that if this stuff gonna come back you have to pay for it you're never gonna get the money for it that's uh that's a tough one mm -hmm. yeah you uh you sort of made a clean break with raw elements back in the day, you know, going into poker flat, do you ever think about making a clean break again and starting fresh? I did have a small thought five years ago when we were, we were turning 10 years and um, we had exactly 100 releases. I'm kind of like the magic of numbers in a way. And I thought one label, 10 years, 100 releases is a good point to stop. And... Um, I had a conversation with my partner about it and we've been saying that uh, it could make sense to, you know, leave it as it is and start something new. But then we were asking ourselves, what would we do differently? What So what would be, because doing the same thing just under a different name doesn't really make sense. Yeah, then we figured out that we would probably not change anything apart from maybe the artwork and the name, but... Funny enough, we changed a lot of the artists afterwards and even the sound changed a little bit because of the change of artists. But in general, the major idea why we're doing the label is still the same. And so for us, then it was fine to keep on doing it. And also um, we had created the brand and why not, you know, like living with it. And even, even though we knew we're not going to win people back who come to like the label because they just discovered it as a new thing or something like it. Yeah, we decided to keep on doing it this way. And so I think until this idea doesn't change and it probably won't change in the next 15 years, we might keep up doing this if we still find you know enough people doing this kind of music, finding enough demos to release it and still finding enough uh, support from the people to keep on doing this as well, of course. 